Hello, this is Manisha Takor. Welcome to the Money Zen Podcast, where I strive to bring you information and inspiration to help you create the financial life that makes your heart sing. Having worked in the financial services industry for over 25 years, I have seen time and again how many smart, hardworking, well-intentioned individuals find themselves confused, overwhelmed, and frustrated about their relationship with money. This podcast series is rooted in my belief that to solve this problem, we don't need more financial information. What we need is more financial wisdom. What we need is clear, unbiased guidance to help us take the optimal actions with our money to achieve our own unique, authentic life goals. I call this financial wisdom Money Zen. As such, the interviews that I will conduct on this Money Zen podcast are designed to help you receive and achieve exactly that. Some of the topics we will cover will be obvious choices for a financial podcast. Topics such as budgeting, investing, and retirement planning. Other topics may surprise you as we delve into advice ranging from how to create your dream professional network to how to find your ideal work-life fit. Taken together, it's my hope that this collection of recordings, which will touch on the topic of money from a wide range of angles, will help you craft your own unique path to your own definition of money's end. So without further ado, let's get on to today's episode. Today's guest, Dave Resner, joins us from St. Louis. As a wealth advisor at Buckingham Strategic Wealth, Dave strives to enrich his clients' lives. Financially, that means helping minimize their taxes, protecting their wealth, and preventing them from jeopardizing their financial security. Personally, that means giving them the freedom to pursue their passions and enjoy their lives. Prior to joining Buckingham, David was president of Resner Financial Planning. He has also held financial advisor positions at American Express Financial Advisors, now known as Ameriprise, and IDS Life Insurance Company. Dave was attractive to Buckingham's fiduciary duty and compensation structure that aligns the firm's interests with clients' best interests. Buckingham's investment strategy, built on evidence, patience, and prudence, is the exact same one Dave uses for his own family. Dave earned his bachelor's degree from Grinnell College in Iowa, where he was an all-American swimmer, and he received his master's degree from the University of Missouri in Columbia. Today, Dave is here to help us demystify the world of planning for college costs. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me, Manisha. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really interested in college planning because my college years at Grinnell were truly transformative, personally, professionally, socially, athletically, and academically, I suppose, too. Uh, So it's very rewarding to help young people find the same thing for themselves. But college is an emotional and financial balancing act, complicated by a lack of transparency and inconsistent practices by the colleges themselves. So if I can help a young person and their family find a great college without jeopardizing their financial security, that's doubly rewarding for me. Well, and it's not easy. As I understand it right now, seven prestigious schools cost more than, and I cannot believe this number, $70,000 per year, and roughly another 100 sought-after schools costs more than $60,000 per year. And that's a 
$1 million per child if they can graduate in four years. So my question to you is, good gracious, what is a family to do? Yeah, it's it's really daunting, Manisha. And the numbers for the 2018-19 school year are even higher. Uh, to give you some frame of reference, Harvey Mudd College in California leads the way at almost $75,000 per year. And not far behind are the likes of Columbia, Dartmouth, Duke, Northwestern, NYU, and Chicago, all over $72,000 a year. But remember, those numbers are the cost of attendance, which is the official term for the all-in cost, which includes tuition, fees, room, board, books, supplies, and even transportation and personal expenses. Another name for that, as I like to say, is the sticker price. And very few families pay full sticker price. Virtually the only people who pay full price are those who are well-off and insist on attending prestigious name-brand schools because those schools, frankly, devote almost all of their financial aid to families who are not well-off. So you asked, what are families to do? First, they should know this simple formula that the cost of attendance, like I mentioned earlier, sticker price, minus gift aid equals net price. And these are three common terms in the college planning business. Gift aid is the free grant or scholarship that does not have to be repaid. The opposite of gift aid is self-help aid. That is a loan that must be repaid or uh, also work study. So again, cost minus gift aid equals net price. And regardless of cost, some schools are more generous with gift aid than others. Those schools can have dramatically lower net prices for some families, and the trick is finding those schools, which we'll talk about here today. Even a, a high-cost school could be affordable if a student is awarded generous gift aid. This can be so true in some cases that a high-cost school can be as affordable or more affordable than schools whose sticker prices are much lower. In other words, some families, a private school can cost the same as or less than a public school. Another important factor is need. In other words, will you be expected to pay full price or not? Families with significant income or assets will qualify for little or no need-based aid, and families of more modest means will be expected to pay less. Simple as that. The College Board website has a, a great online calculator that will help families figure out where they stand. The calculator computes something called the Expected Family Contribution, or EFC, the amount that a family will be expected to pay. And please be aware, if, if it's not complicated enough already, there are two main EFCs, the federal EFC to determine eligibility for federal aid and the institutional EFC to determine one's eligibility for aid from the schools themselves. Families with a high EFC should focus on schools that are generous with gift aid, commonly referred to as merit aid. And I should stop for a moment. I find that most people consider themselves middle class, and many families are stunned to learn that their EFC is $50,000, $70,000 or more per year. And I'm sympathetic to those families, but I'm, I'm straight with them. They will probably pay full price at prestigious name brand schools because those schools, like I said earlier, devote most of their financial aid to need-based aid for families 
who have low expected family contributions. Those schools don't have to give much merit aid because there are plenty of families willing and even happy to pay full price. However, if your child has good grades, test scores, or other noteworthy qualities or skills, there are plenty of other excellent schools that will gladly discount their sticker prices with free grants and scholarships. You just have to know where to find them, and you increase the odds of earning that merit aid by applying to schools where your scores and GPA put you in the top 25% of applicants. And we'll talk in a moment, I think, about uh, where you can find that information. Back to your question though, at, at most schools, families of more modest means will qualify for need-based aid, sometimes a lot of aid. So they should look for schools that literally have financial aid policies of meeting 100% of every student's need and doing so with that free gift aid. It's important to know that very few schools have such policies so you have to know where to find them and know how to look under the hood of each school to determine which will be most generous in your particular situation. In fact, from the outside, two similarly priced schools might have dramatically different net prices after factoring in aid. And finally, just one more point, Manisha. You hit the nail on the head when you said, if the student can graduate in four years. Sometimes that is in the student's control, but often it's not. Some schools have such dismal graduation rates that beg the question whether classes are being offered in sufficient numbers or if there's some other force at work. Many schools have graduation rates of 60% or less. And you have to be careful because graduation rates are often reported in six-year timeframes. You don't want to budget for four years and end up on the hook for five or six years. Fortunately, selective schools like most people are interested in tend to have better graduation rates, but it's still important to double check. And as I always tell people, as soon as a student enrolls at a school, map out a plan to graduate in four years with your advisor. Wow. I feel like just in this one answer, you have given us so much information. I encourage listeners to possibly stop and rewind and and listen to this information again. It is one of the clearest explanations that I have ever heard to this question. So thank you. Let me ask, some families might be willing and able to pay full price for a brand name school. For those who are either unwilling or unable, where can they find high-quality schools that are more likely to be generous with financial aid? Great question. And, and I think to start out with, the easiest way to answer that is this. As a rule of thumb, well-to-do families should not expect generous merit aid from schools on the East or West Coast, schools in, say, desirable metropolitan areas, or again, like I said earlier, the, those brand name prestige schools. And frankly, don't look for bargains in the U.S. news rankings either. So where should you look? I encourage people to look off the beaten path, so to speak. There are excellent schools in the South, West, and Midwest, especially in rural areas. Like you said earlier, I attended Grinnell College in a town of 9,000 people in central Iowa, and it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that because Grinnell is not in, say, Chicago or the East or West Coast. It is a school that knows that it has to 
be a little extra generous with financial aid, and its policy is to meet 100% of every admitted student's need. Other places to look, like I said earlier, I promised I'd give you some actual resources. There's a great organization called Colleges That Change Lives, and they maintain a list of 44 schools, many of which are not household names, but offer great educations, and I would argue maybe even better for some students than those at the top of the U.S. news rankings. Minisha, in your area, two of those schools are Reed College and Willamette University on the list. Another great organization is the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges. Now, I'm going to show my bias here. I, I, I'm a liberal arts grad. I think you are, too. I am, too. Uh, but if you're interested in a liberal arts education but not interested in the usual high price of a private school, council members of this list are 30 public liberal arts colleges in 28 states in Canada. And again, Manisha, in your area is Southern Oregon University and the Evergreen State College. Interestingly, Evergreen State is also on the list that I just mentioned, colleges that change lives. A couple of other options that should not be overlooked are honors colleges at one's home state public university. But you do have to be careful because some states have cut higher education funding so much that their public universities have had no choice but to increase tuition and worse, cut faculty and services that might not be as apparent as an actual higher sticker price. Furthermore, some public universities welcome out-of-state students because they often pay twice the in-state rate. And finally, I often recommend community colleges. Some of my advisor colleagues here at Buckingham satisfied their core requirements at extremely cost-effective community colleges. And nowadays, doing so is even easier because many community colleges and four-year universities have developed something called articulation agreements, which ensure a smooth transition from one school to the next. Finally, could I talk for a moment about being a big fish in a little pond? Oh, absolutely. Would you rather be in the middle of the pack at MIT or the cream of the crop at a slightly less competitive school? Research has been done on that very question. And there are very real benefits to attending a school where, say, research opportunities are more readily available, professor interaction is common, and professional experience is easy to come by rather than being available only to the best of the best students. So by opting for a slightly less competitive school, you could obtain a better education and better preparation for the real world at less cost because those schools are some of the schools that do give generous merit aid and gift aid. Finally, you, you asked about families who are unable to pay full price. Again, if a family truly has a low EFC, a low expected family contribution, they will be eligible for need-based aid at many schools, including the coastal big city brand name schools that I mentioned earlier, because those schools, like I said, devote most of their aid to families with need. As a result, such schools might be even more affordable for a low EFC family than they are for a high EFC family, ironically. If someone is interested in a particular school, where should they look for information about that school and perhaps similar schools? Certainly consult each college's website, that's obvious, but I encourage families to go beyond that and become 
familiar with one or more people in the admissions and financial aid offices, as well as professors in your field of interest. On that note, there's something in college admissions called demonstrated interest. That is, some schools are more inclined to admit students who have shown that they really want to attend that school. And you show this by engaging with staff and faculty. The most selective schools might not care because they don't need to. They have more applicants than they know what to do with. And big public schools also have too many applicants to really track this sort of thing. However, there's that middle group where I, I think it's the sweet spot for your listeners and, and my clients. Those small selective schools, maybe a notch or two below the Ivy League, some might say, that often track applicant interest because the schools themselves are judged on how many admitted students actually enroll. And if they know a student is dying to attend, all else equal, that fact could tip the scales in their favor. So back to your question. Um, other places to look for information about schools, you know, the school newspaper, a campus visit, an overnight stay, attend class, eat in the dining hall, and get friendly with some current students. Uh, as I promised, there's some great online resources. Three come to mind in particular that are really great at helping you look under the hood of the colleges. Collegedata.com, College Navigator, and the College Board website all maintain data on admissions criteria, financial criteria, academics, graduation rates, etc., that can really help you separate two seemingly similar schools from each other. And as you asked about, also give suggestions for if you're considering this school, uh, you might also consider that school. I would also strongly encourage families not to overlook what happens after graduation. If you're a student or if you're a parent, you want to make sure that your son or daughter is going to capitalize on the investment of their education. So are graduation rates respectable? placement rates, income, indebtedness, et cetera. And so there are some websites that maintain that data as well. The Chronicle of Higher Education has a great college completion website on graduation rates, collegerealitycheck.com, collegefactual, and collegeresults.org are some other great ones. And finally, one of the places where I began my journey in learning about this are just two generally helpful websites thecollegesolution.com, and a gentleman by the name of Mark Kantrowitz, who is considered the uh, expert's expert in college planning. You know, Dave, I had really never thought about after graduation above and beyond thinking about somebody's ability to pay down student loan debt. I think you raised such a powerful well, You've raised many powerful points in our conversation so far, but I really particularly am struck by by that one as a component that I'm not hearing a lot of discussion around. So I thank you for, for mentioning that. So Dave, um, okay, we're, we're here. Parents have determined their expected family contribution. What do they do with that information? Great. Yeah, good question. So let's remember what we discussed earlier, the cost of attendance, the sticker price, or the all-in cost. Parents should compare their EFC, 
their expected family contribution to the cost of attendance. If a school's cost is greater than your expected contribution, then the difference is your demonstrated need. But remember, not all schools meet 100% of every student's need. So let's use an example here. Let's assume a school's cost is $50,000 and a family's EFC is $30,000. The difference, $20,000, is the family's need. Unfortunately, very few schools will give that family $20,000 in aid to meet their need. Uh, that practice is called gapping, where they will maybe give you $10,000 and expect you to come up with the other 10. The holy grail are those schools that have policies, like I said earlier, of meeting 100% of every admitted student's need and doing so mostly or entirely with free grants and scholarships as opposed to loans that must be repaid. The good news is that most of those generous schools are some of the best schools in the country because they just happen to be very well endowed and have devoted a good portion of their endowment to financial aid. And you can find those schools at some of the websites I mentioned earlier, especially collegedata.com and College Navigator. One last thing, if a family's expected contribution is greater than the cost of attendance, then they have no need and shouldn't expect any need-based aid. In fact, the schools that are, like I said earlier, generous with need-based aid tend to be pretty stingy with merit aid because they are some of the most desirable schools in the country. And again, many families are willing and even eager to pay full price. So one question that I have, you know, I feel like I graduated from college in 92. I feel like I'm part of the last generation that actually got to go to great name brand schools at you know, they weren't bargain basement prices, but they were reasonable prices. So one question that I have as I'm looking at the current morass and situation is what information do the financial aid applications today ask and what do they do with that information? In other words, how do income and assets impact one's eligibility for financial aid? Yeah. Um, interestingly, I graduated in 1992 as well, and I have a pretty clear memory of the first year's tuition being about $14,000, whereas this year it's quadruple that and then some. So to your question, uh, the, the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, is the primary financial aid application, and it gathers a bunch of information across 100 questions or so. But those questions fall largely into four categories, parents' income and assets and students' income and assets. So here's how the FAFSA views each of those four bits of data. Parents' income is assessed, in other words, the portion of parents' income that is considered fair game for college costs is anywhere between 22 and 47% of parents' income over an amount of an income protection allowance. So they don't expect parents to devote 22 to 47% of every dollar to college. They forgive or, or ignore anywhere between eighteen dollars and $38,000 roughly of income, and it's on a sliding scale, as you can imagine. Parents' assets, so that's anywhere from 26 to 5.6% of the amount of assets over 
an asset protection allowance. So again, they don't expect parents to devote every dollar of their savings to, to college. And that asset protection allowance for a 45-year-old parent is, is roughly $20,000. Now for students' income and assets. A student's income, the FAFSA assesses 50% of their income over $6,600 this coming year. So a student can earn up to $6,600 in a part-time or summer job and not have a, a dime of it assessed. And as for students' assets, it's 20% with no asset protection allowance. So 20% of every dollar in the student's name is fair game when it comes to calculating that expected family contribution. A couple of other uh, tangential related things that might be of interest to your listeners, Manisha. Divorce is kind of beyond the scope of, of this conversation, but suffice to say, only the custodial parent must complete the FAFSA. So that's the, the parent with whom the student lived more than half of the prior 12 months. And that can produce or, or result in some beneficial situations uh, where the less well-off parent as long as that parent did uh, provide six months and a day of shelter to the child, can complete the FAFSA and, and maybe result in greater financial aid. I'll conclude by just sharing a couple of other things. As I said earlier, the, the FAFSA is for federal aid. There is a secondary financial aid application called the CSS profile used by alma maters like yours and mine, and about 230-some-odd schools around the country that give out their own aid. They feel that the FAFSA doesn't dig deeply enough, and, and it's true. The FAFSA, you can game the FAFSA. You can take money out of one pocket and put it in another, and by doing so, you look more like you have more need as far as the FAFSA is concerned. The CSS profile digs much more deeply with about more than 200 questions uh, that makes it much harder to game the system. And finally, the strategy that I find most helpful, most impactful with some families is, you know, I, I run across a lot of families that have either the grandparents or the parents have opened custodial accounts for their kids or grandkids, and that is a student asset. And like I said a moment ago, 20% of that account is fair game. Simply by converting that custodial account to a 529 account, you transform it from a student asset to a parent asset. You transform it from a 20% assessment to at most a 5.6% assessment. It can really make a big difference. It can reduce that expected family contribution pretty considerably. So if somebody's on the cusp of being eligible or ineligible for aid, need-based aid, this can really change the, the landscape for them. Now, one question that just ran through my head as you were saying that was, under parents' assets, does that include retirement assets? It does not on the FAFSA. The CSS profile will ask about it but it does not necessarily factor into a school's decision as to how much money it will give to a student. And that's, that's the interesting thing about the two different financial aid applications. The FAFSA gathers data that goes into a formula, and out the other end comes a number. And every school will look at that number identically. 
However, the CSS profile gathers data, some of which goes into a formula, some of which is just kept in reserve in case there's a question about special circumstances or a family trying to make a judgment call between in a special situation or between two families when it comes to awarding financial aid. Gotcha. I understand there's been a change in the process and timing of applying for financial aid. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. used to be that financial aid applications became available in January, and you used data from the prior year's tax return to complete that application. Now, financial aid applications are available three months earlier on October 1st of each year. So if a student is a high school senior now, say, their freshman year financial aid application became available last month. To complete that form, they would use their 2016, their family's 2016 tax return. So it sounds more complicated than it is. I I remember it this way. The years follow sequentially. So you would use the 2016 tax information to complete the FAFSA in late 2017 for the 2018-19 school year. So the years follow in order, 16, 17, 18, 19. What other opportunities or caveats result from that change? Yeah, so there's something called base year in financial aid, and that is the first year that is looked at for the purposes of financial aid. And as I said a moment ago, if a student's freshman year is the 18-19 school year, their base year is 2016. So already today, 16 and much of 17, the die is already cast. So a family needs to be aware that that base year actually happens in a high school student's sophomore year. And so if there's any room to improve a family's financial aid eligibility, it's got to be done as early as the student's freshman year of high school. A couple of other caveats and and opportunities. Income, the die is cast as early as sophomore year. Assets don't matter until the date that you sign the form. So as long as you win the lottery the day after you sign the FAFSA, you're okay. And then finally, uh, one of the things that we get a lot of questions about are grandparent-owned 529 accounts. Well, this new dynamic of requiring the 20, for example, the 2016 tax information for the 2018-19 school year, it, it used to be that a grandparent-owned 529 account could have been detrimental to financial aid through the student's first five semesters. You could actually use the grandparent-owned 529 account for the last three semesters with no harm to financial aid eligibility. But now this new dynamic that you asked about makes it so that as long as you don't use the grandparent-owned 529 account for the first three semesters, you can use it for the last five semesters with no harm to financial aid eligibility. Well, let me wrap with a a personal question. Um, Dave, you're a parent and an advisor. So what is your college plan for your child? Yeah, uh, my daughter's still young, and fortunately for my wife and me, she is our only child, although that has pros and cons. Uh, So if everything goes according to plan, we only have four years of college to pay for. Grad school is another story. 
My wife and I followed very different college paths, interestingly. I attended a private liberal arts college in rural Iowa. She attended a public commuter school here in St. Louis. Not to say that we're pulling in different directions by any means. In fact, I've personally come around to thinking that uh, prestigious names aren't all they're cracked up to be in some cases. Don't get me wrong. You want to attend a good school, but there are hundreds, literally hundreds of good schools beyond the U.S. news rankings, public and private. And as most HR managers will attest, college is important, but job performance is at least as important, if not more so. So our plan is now with our daughter being 13 to instill in her a love of learning, then see where her interests and aptitudes take her. I know that two similar quality and similar cost schools can have dramatically different net prices, so net price will be a factor. An equally important factor will be fit. Will she be driven to compete or prefer a more collaborative environment, perhaps a school where she's a big fish in that uh, bit smaller pond? A large school or small school, urban or rural, these are all criteria that I used when choosing my college. What extracurricular activities interest her? Competitive swimming was a huge part of my college experience. And there are the post-college variables that we discussed, graduation rate, internship opportunities, and job assistance. Where will she be happy and safe? Will her peers and teachers care for her as much as her mother and I do? There are no guarantees, but if you do your homework, you can rule out uh, a lot of schools and put the odds in your favor. And in my opinion, those things are far more important, formative, and long-lasting than a prestigious name or U.S. News and Ranking. Dave, literally, I'm almost speechless, which rarely happens to me. Um, this has just been so incredibly useful, and you've explained it in a way that actually feels warm and inviting, which are two words I never thought I would use when talking about the planning for college cost conversation. And I, I just want to thank you for joining us and also to encourage listeners to share this podcast on your Facebook pages and with friends and family who are about to grapple with this or, you know, even if their kids are young, I think you can never start thinking about this too early. And Dave, I know you typically deal with high net worth clients. And so not everyone who listens to this would be on your radar for someone that might be able to come to you as a client. But for those who are, can you tell us how to get in touch with you? Certainly. Uh, I'm a proud advisor at Buckingham Strategic Wealth in St. Louis, Missouri. Our website is buckinghamadvisor.com. And uh, you can find me and all of my colleagues there on that website. And for folks who want to just call you, um, is there a direct number they can reach you at? Certainly. 314-743-2213. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, again, I, I think, um, and I, I don't think I've ever said this about another podcast, but I, I feel like the student loan crisis has reached such epidemic proportions that this is information we need to get out to as many parents as we possibly can. So I ask you to help me pay it forward. I'm certainly going to be um, sharing this on all of my social media, and I, I encourage you to do so too. I think we can help a lot of families by sharing Dave's wisdom. So Dave, thank you for being with us here today. 
I'm so grateful to have the opportunity, Misha. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Money Zen Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd go to iTunes and leave a review. The more reviews this podcast receives, the easier it will be for other women and families to find this information. It only takes a minute to leave a review on iTunes, and it will have a big impact. If you'd like more information or to stay connected with me, simply go to moneyzen.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, see a full listing of past podcasts, and connect with me on social media. Lastly, I'd just like to end by saying, never in the history of the world have women in aggregate been able to have the level of control around our finances as we do today. At the same time, we appear to be at a very unique period in the history of the world. As I tape these episodes across the globe, there is anger, hurt, divisiveness, and outrage around so many issues. By helping yourself and the women around you stand on your own two financial feet, you are putting yourself in a stronger position to make whatever impact you feel you can to shift this negative energy to the positive and impact the causes you care about. So thank you for listening and helping spread the word. Here's to your money's end.